If you have a Bible, uh, turn with me to Zechariah chapter 3. If you're looking at the Bibles uh, that are provided there, it's on page 1403, second to the last book of the Old Testament. You may ask, why are we in the prophet Zechariah at Christmas time? And uh, Zechariah, um, it, first off, is a, is a beautiful uh, prophecy. It begins with, uh, with eight visions, and, and then the last uh, five chapters, 9 through 14, are, are, are this, uh, this presentation of, of the hope for God's people who are experiencing um, amazing disappointment and despair. We've talked about how uh, Advent, the season leading up to Christmas, uh, is an expectation of, of God's coming, but it's also uh, this, 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 in some senses, this, a walk through a season of darkness where, um, where we have this hope, this longing, and, and it's, it's, it's helpful and even appropriate for us to experience some of the, uh, the anxieties, the, um, the despair, the, the difficulties of, of the, the, the expectations that are put on us during the holiday season, uh, because it helps us to identify with uh, the story that um, that unfolds of God with His people. The um, the whole of Scripture tells this story of God making us to be in fellowship with Him, and the breaking of that fellowship that we experience uh, through our sin and through uh, the sins of others, and then the the work of restoration for that relationship that God works miraculously to bring us out of darkness and into what the Apostle Paul calls a marvelous light. And so I've taken us back here to some of the minor prophets last week and this week because there's, there's this time in the, the history of God's people where they uh, are, are experiencing despair and hopelessness. And even I'll, I'll describe a little bit more of this after we read it. Um, a season that seems like it should be hopeful, but for various reasons it's not. And that season is one in which uh, God's people and this kingdom that he set up and protected, they've been taken to exile in Babylon and they spend 70 years, 70 years in exile, a whole lifetime of many people. So that means basically no one had experienced life in the land that God had promised them under the self-rule. And they've always been in this exile and then they return from the exile. And, and Zechariah is writing this prophecy after that return and the hope in seeing God miraculously bring them back. And yet, 20 years into the project, they don't see much progress. 20 years into the project, they don't see much progress. And in that context, Zechariah the prophet has these visions given to him by God and records these words uh, to give hope to the people of God. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord 
was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. The grass withers and the flower falls, the prophet Isaiah tells us, but the word of God will stand forever. Will you pray with me? O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord. That is, that they would be good and right. That they would be helpful for us. Convicting and assuring. We ask in the powerful name of Jesus our Savior. Amen. A lot of people in this story. This is the third of the visions that Zechariah sees. And the characters need some introduction, like a, like a play set before us. They don't really get an introduction in the uh, prophecy and the vision, but probably most of the people in Zechariah's time would be familiar, probably more familiar than we are with a, a number of the images and even the names. Let me say this before we start, that as you read through the, the prophets, the minor prophets and the, uh, the, the, the major prophets, the longer prophets, the minors are not less important, they're just shorter. But as you read through this, I want to commend to you um, this one book I put, it, put in the back, a study Bible, the ESV study Bible, because oftentimes when we come to these passages, we, we, we come to, um, to images and to, to names that are very unfamiliar, and, and a simple study Bible will uh, kind of clear the way. If you have a quick question, there are notes at the bottom, and the ESV study Bible has some wonderful notes, but also a number of other great resources. If you don't have a study Bible that you like and that you use regularly, um, uh, don't take ours, it's ours, but, uh, but I encourage you to, um, to buy, buy that one or another one that you like. Who is Satan? They, uh, Satan's name is mentioned multiple times here. Uh, we, we kind of uh, write off Satan some of the time. We talk, talk about those people who talk about demons and Satan too much as, as being too caught up in that. Or maybe as C.S. Lewis likes to say, you know, there are two equal and opposite heirs in the study of, uh, of demonology and spiritual battle and warfare. And that is to pay too much attention to it, but the other one is to, to pay no attention to it. As we read in the Nicene Creed earlier, by the way, well done making it through that whole thing. It's longer and more difficult. 
God is the maker of all things visible and invisible, referring to the spiritual powers in this world, the things unseen but that are very real. The Bible presents this devil and gives him a name, Satan. And we should take it seriously. God identifies him, gives him certain power, interacts with him on various occasions. Remember the story of Job, wealthy man in the time of the the Old Testament, even before most of the Old Testament was written, wealthy man. And with a, uh, a family, and he has everything taken away. And the, the book of Job introduces it, that Satan came to God, and they have this interaction where God allows Satan to do these things to Job. Other examples as well of interactions with Satan. He is the one who comes and tempts Jesus. When he's in the wilderness and about to engage, embark on his his public ministry. For 30 years, Jesus grew up, worked uh, alongside his his, his family and their their family business as a carpenter. And then for three years, engages in public ministry. And before, between those times, in preparation for his public ministry, Jesus is confronted by the devil, Satan. And Satan tempts him in three particular ways. That's usually how we think of Satan, isn't it? The the tempter, the one who comes and tells us to do bad things. Sort of two voices sitting on our shoulders. And Satan certainly is a tempter. But it's more important to understand in this context that Satan, even the name of Satan has a particular meaning in the Hebrew. And for Hebrew speakers and hearers, they would have immediately recognized the name of Satan means the accuser. And even more than a tempter, when we read the name of Satan, here the concept, the the person of the devil or Satan, we should identify him with being the accuser. Various authors in the New Testament pick up on this theme the accuser of the brethren. And that is Satan's primary role. It's a very uh, courtroom type setting that we should envision with this prophecy that Satan is in the role of the district attorney accusing Joshua. Accusing Joshua of being a heinous sinner. Before God. It's portrayed very vividly in the concept of filthy clothes, quite literally defiled, probably with human excrement. As Zechariah reveals to us, is representative of his iniquity in verse 4. Of his iniquity, his sins. A very vivid picture. And Satan, the accuser, is in the room saying, You are guilty, Joshua. Now let's take a look at who Joshua is for a minute. 
Joshua is the high priest. In the Old Testament times, there were three offices that were established by God that played critical roles among the people of God. There was, on the one hand, the king that God established, David, Solomon. The king played the role of the one who preserved justice, executed justice. In the Old Testament, the judges were not so much as trial, picture courtroom, but kings who executed the justice as well as conducted the trials. You might say it opened itself for an abuse of power, and that's a discussion for another day. But God established this role as somebody who was responsible for justice. King, the judges. You also had the prophets. And the prophets were people who were called by God to be the mouthpiece of God, to speak to the people on behalf of God. And oftentimes the prophets were calling people back to God. The book of Zechariah opens with the words, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. That was the prophet's role, was to call the people out of darkness, out of their sin, out of their leaving and fleeing from God, to return to God. And to give them promises and assurances that while God's anger lasts for a while, and while our anger against sin and the effects of sin should last for a while, that there is forgiveness, and there is restoration, and there is reason to hope. The constant cycle of this is repeated throughout the history of the Old Testament. And we we can find ourselves as something of a microcosm of experience in this way with that redemptive history of running from God and then coming back to Him. And running from God and coming back to Him. Of running from God, but realize that we don't come back to Him on our own strength. It's God who comes after us and says, often through the voice of the prophets, reason to read the prophets, return to me. Return to me and I will return to you. And if you find yourself in a place of darkness or a place of wilderness like wandering, hear the voice of God through the prophets calling to you, return to me and I will return to you. The prophets had this important role and still we should heed their voice. So you have the king and the prophets, but then you also have this third role. The three offices of the Old Testament, they are called helpfully, help us to understand who these people are and have a much better, much bigger understanding in helping us to understand who the Christ is when he comes because the Christ holds all three offices. Essentially the only person to hold all three of these offices, by the way. And the third office is that of the high priest or the priestly office. Not just the high priest, but the priests. And the primary role of the priests was to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. 
The priests were given instructions to do so and to offer those sacrifices on behalf of the people. And that, it seems like some sort of a technical role. We might think of somebody just going and going through the motions and taking the animal and sacrificing it and burning it or whatever and feeding the people. But the, the priests had the most interactive role with the people of any of those offices. The prophets spoke, but oftentimes the people didn't want to hear the speaking. They weren't relationally connected. The king ruled, but oftentimes there was one king and many people. The people couldn't know the people. But the priests were numerous. And the priests were oftentimes, there was a, 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 a gathering, there were a large number of priests that operated around the temple where the sacrifices were offered. But there were also priests who were sent out to the people and lived among the people. And they had this relational connection with the people. And so when the people brought sacrifices to be offered by the priests, the priests oftentimes, if things were working well, knew the people and the sin that they were dealing with. Do you see how this is not just a technical role, but a pastoral role? of knowing the people and applying the forgiveness that God brings through the voice of the prophets to the people's lives in very intimate ways. The priests acted as intermediaries, mediators between God and the people. And so the priests took the sins of the people, symbolically placed on the animals, and committed the sacrifice in order to be between the people and God's justice. And so when we hear that Jesus held the role of priest, Jesus, whose name is essentially the same in Hebrew as Joshua, Jesus has given the name, that name to tie us to this concept of Joshua. We should see in Joshua both a representative of the people and a representative of the Christ. Isn't this a powerful image that Joshua is representing the Christ, but also that Joshua is closely connected to the people. And so when the people heard this and knew that Joshua was a high priest, they would identify themselves with Joshua and recognize that their own garments were filthy and recognize their own sin. But here's the most beautiful thing in all of this passage is that you expect that God the judge would come and rebuke the people who have the filthy garments, filthy not just by human excrement, but by their sin. And who gets rebuked? Who gets rebuked? It is the accuser. It is the Satan. It is the one who brings these accusations on God's people. Why? Not because they're not filthy, 
The scene plays out, not that Satan was the one throwing excrement on the people, but the people were clothed with this garment that was covered with the excrement, covered with their sin in a very real way. And Satan wanted to point that out, but God was saying, I've done something for this people that takes all of their sins away. They didn't change their clothes, but I, God, says, I have taken their filthy garments off and put on these beautiful, pure vestments. And isn't it an interesting thing that happens right on the heels of that? He puts on the, the clean garment. And you expect that was enough. But in a continuation of the scene, Zechariah interjects his own voice. It says, I said, verse 5. Zechariah interjects his own voice and he says, Look, don't stop, don't stop at the garment. Put a clean turban on his head as well. You recognize some echoes in the story. Are you familiar with the story that's told in the Gospel of John where Jesus is with his disciples shortly before he's going to go to the cross and, and Jesus pulls out a wash basin and comes to his disciples and he starts taking off their sandals and washing their feet. And it's a beautiful scene there. It's in John chapter 13. And Peter, he comes to Peter, and Peter says, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus says, what I'm doing, you don't understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said, you shall never wash my feet. Peter, Peter is always expressing what we all think. But no one else is willing to say it among the disciples. We're oftentimes not willing to say it. Jesus, you can't wash my feet. You don't let me do it. And Jesus answered, if I don't wash you, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. And what does Peter say? Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Zechariah is saying the same thing. Don't just wash my body, my, but wash me all the way. My head as well. Put the clean turban on me as well or on Joshua. And it's a call, it's a reminder to us that when God calls us and cleanses us, His hope is to cleanse the whole of us. He doesn't fail in that process, but, but what happens to us? What happens to us so often is this picture that's laid out in Zechariah, what's going on with the rebuilding of the city and rebuilding of the temple. And here's what's happening in the context of the history of redemption at that time. Remember, the people were in exile in Babylon. And then they, they come back to the city under the authority and by the direction of the new king in Persia. Persia takes over the region and then sends them back and gives them instructions to build the temple, even gives them resources to build the temple. And they lay the foundation of the temple and then the building stops. 
You know, we, we've seen this. If you've been around San Diego for a while, we moved here about 10 years ago, and there was a huge building boom leading up to the time that we got here, and even right when we got here, and then the housing market crashed, and you had all these buildings, especially in East Village downtown, that were started and then not, stopped, not finished. And they, they crawled along at a snail's pace. It was going part, kind of a picture of what was going on in Jerusalem. They started the foundation of the temple, and then it stopped for 20 years, 20 years. And isn't this a picture of what happens in our own lives where we come to Christ out of some type of desperation, some need oftentimes, and we recognize that need, and then we have that need met a little bit, and then we stop, and the foundation is laid, but no building is continued on. It's like Jesus washing our feet, but we don't go on to say, I need you to wash my whole body, hands and head. It's like we get the clean, clean garment, but then we, we forget that we, we need everything, the clean turban as well. The story goes on here, and you have another character emerge in the story, and that's the angel of the Lord. He's there the whole time. He's active in the whole scene. He's standing. Joshua, the high priest, is standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan, standing at his right hand to accuse him. And then verse 6, the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. Who is this angel of the Lord? We've already tied Joshua a little bit to the person of Jesus, but actually Joshua in this setting, remember Joshua, the high priest and the priest were intermediaries between the people and God. And in this scene, Joshua is meant to represent the people much more than he is to represent God, at least at the beginning of this. And the angel of the Lord is this technical term here we have a technical term. In the Old Testament, it's not just any angel, but it is always, from what I can tell, at least almost always, referring to the second person of the Trinity, that is Jesus before he becomes incarnate. It is God the Son, who is the judge of the world, we learn, in the, when, when he appears and God gives him all authority, but in this case, he's the defender of Joshua. He is the defense attorney in the courtroom scene. He is the one who is reminding Satan of his place, but far more powerfully reminding Joshua, and by extension, all of us as God's people, our place in the courtroom. That while we have our own sense of guilt, and I don't care if you have a soft conscience or even the hardest of consciences. All of us have some sense of our guilt, of our shortcomings, our wrongdoing. Even if we don't recognize God's law as being perfect and good, we have our own set of expectations that we realize that we don't live up to. And we need to hear this voice that comes from Jesus, pre-incarnate Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the angel of the Lord, speaking words of, in verse 6, 
assurance. Assurance to Joshua and to God's people. Now what does he assure Joshua of? First, it's that he's been made clean. That there's nothing that can be thrown at him by the accuser that would take that cleanness away. Second, that he calls Joshua to walk in this way now. The response isn't just, oh, thanks for saying that. I'm going to go do my own thing now. But the response and the call to Joshua and to each of us is that we would walk in God's ways and keep his charge. And God gives us responsibility to not just be in his house. And again, this is echoed in the New Testament. The book of Zechariah is echoed all over the place in the New Testament. Over 50 allusions and a number of quotations directly from Zechariah for a fairly short prophet. It's, it's really powerful. This, this concept is echoed by Jesus himself that he is going to give not just his apostles, not just a select group, but all of his followers a responsibility of ruling, of governing things, a responsibility of true meaningful work in his house. And a right of access. A right of access. Who has the right of access? The people who have the right of access are the ones, in God's sense, who have been made holy. Who have had their sin taken away. The picture that is given to us in uh, Exodus and Leviticus of the primary responsibility of that high priest. Joshua is a high priest was that once a year he would go into the Holy of Holies that was in the temple structure. The temple structure, concentric areas meant to depict God's ultimate holiness, which was in the middle. And only one person went in there and only once a year, and that was the high priest on behalf of the people. And so when Joshua gets the right of access to go into that place, It's speaking of that high place, the holy place, the holy of holies, that he can go before God. I mean, this was risky business. The people, by God's instruction, would tie a rope around the high priest so that if he went in in an unworthy manner and he died, they could pull out his dead body. But here's... Here's what Jesus, the high priest, has done on our behalf to give us assurance and access to God. And that is that he has gone in to the high place, the holy of holies, in order to make a place, a way that we can go in with him. And how does he do it? This whole imagery of this story is is brought out and and revealed in this. How does he do it? First, he takes on our sin. He takes on that filthy garment. He puts it on himself and takes the punishment for it in the death on a cross. But second... He actually was the only one who had a good garment, a righteous garment, a clean garment. And he takes that clean garment that he had and exchanges it with us and puts on us the clean garment. 
And in his death, significantly, the curtain that kept a separation between that holy of holies place and and the rest of the temple is torn down so that not just the high priest, but all the people that the high priest represents can enter into that holy of holies now into God's presence. And so Jesus takes on the role of the high priest by offering himself as the sacrifice and representing the people that he knows so intimately to become the intermediary between us and God and give us access. The priests are this sign. The sign of God fulfilling his promise. And the imagery is rich here. He fulfills his promise. Look with me at verse 8. He fulfills his promise and he says that he, uh, here now, Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends, that is the other priests who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. Prophet Jeremiah refers to this as the righteous branch. And the prophet Isaiah refers to it as a branch who will come out of the stump of Jesse. Remember Jesse? Jesse's the one who's introduced in the book of Ruth at the end. Jesse is the father of King David. And the stump of David is that kingly line that comes from David, a descendant of David. But there was a problem at this time in redemptive history with the people, and that is that the last king who came from David, who was king when the people were taken into exile into Babylon, was removed from his throne. And not Babylon, but God said, none of your children, none of your sons will become king anymore. So there's a conundrum. How can a righteous branch, a descendant of David, become king when God said none of the ones of the line of the kings are going to be king again. And some 400 years later, Jesus is born not of the descendants of Jehoiakim, who had been king, but of the lineage of the lineage of David. Both the Gospel of Matthew and Luke give us the genealogy that comes from David. Right at the beginning, you think, why do you start with genealogies are so boring? Well, it's purposeful to show us that Jesus is the branch. That Jesus is the branch. Now, the branch isn't just this little stubbly branch coming out of a stump by itself in the, you know, like the Charlie Brown Christmas tree. But the branch is actually one who's going to expand. Later in Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12, in another vision, Another of the eight visions. We hear about the branch again. It says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from this place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. 
shall branch out from this place. It's foretold, foreseen even in this one, in verse 10. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. There's a promise that God had given King Solomon and a principle that uh, was to be practiced in the nation of Israel that God wasn't just interested in calling together some nationalistic tribe and protecting that tribe, but God was interested in using this people, blessing this people so that the good news of this salvation, of putting the clean garment, clean turban on a people would go out far and wide to many nations. That that branch who was coming was going to come from this family, from David. But the extension of his kingdom and his blessing would not be limited to that small region of the world. Or that small ethnic group and family. The priest. The priest has the role to bring many people to God even among many nations. I rarely do this. I want to take two minutes to go back to something that I skipped over. Because it's one of the images in this that's most powerful, and that was the brand that was plucked from the, uh, the fire. Did you, did you catch that? It's, uh, um, it's almost easy to, to read over, and it's back in, in verse 2. Um, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a, a brand plucked from the fire? What is the brand plucked from the fire? You might, might be familiar with the image in Isaiah where, where God takes Isaiah and says, I'm a man of unclean lips, unable to be a prophet, and God takes a brand from the fire and he touches the lips of Isaiah and he makes him clean so that he can speak God's words that's what I typically think of when I hear of the brand. But in this case, what God is literally doing is taking something, a, a, a piece of wood that's been burned partially from the fire and taking it out so it's not burned entirely. He's rescuing something or someone from the fire, and Joshua is that someone. Joshua is the brand who's been plucked from the fire and the fil- part of the filth of the garment that you can see is, is that burned ash all around there. And that fire in this case is God's fire of judgment, of bringing righteous judgment to the earth. It's caught up in the end of it when he talks about a single day and the day of the Lord, the concept that comes out is both a day of judgment and yet in Christ, a day of mercy and grace. Now, the whole concept of the day of the Lord is more than we can tackle today. But the image that is presented here again, I want you to see, is that courtroom image and God burning the things that need to be burned. The things that have brought harm to his world. And by his world, not just his creation and some inanimate objects, but to the whole world and the humanity that exists in the world. You see, the hope of the incarnation is tied up in this idea of God's servant, the branch, the, uh, the, 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 the Joshua, all of these images coming and turning God's judgment upside down 
so that the, those of us who deserve judgment are clothed with that righteousness of Christ. And the call of the darkness right now and the, the light that comes in at Christmas is a light that helps us to see the kind of state that we're in. And maybe that state is outside of the kingdom entirely, a foreigner, and needing to have some foundation laid. Maybe you're at a place where you're, you've built the foundation, but nothing else has been built on it, and you're stagnant. Maybe you've built up this great structure, but you've mixed in a bunch of your own building trades with God's building plan, and your building is a hodgepodge of your own skills and talents that choke out your relationship with God and serve as a, a place of pride. Isn't it interesting that the high priests by the time of Jesus have become not the intermediaries of the people but the oppressors of the people? people who were supposed to be closest with God and probably knew God's word the best had become the hardest of hearted people. To not even recognize when the Christ entered into their presence. When this servant of the Lord, humble, was born, lived among them, and taught them offered salvation to them, did not even fight them when they sent him to his death in collusion with the rulers of the city. There are many dangerous places that we can be. The salvation and the hope and the voice of the prophets calling into the darkness is calling not just to one group, but to all of those groups and many more, saying, return to me, and I will return to you. Today, if you hear God's voice, don't harden your hearts, but respond and return to the Lord. Let's pray. Oh, Lord. Jesus, we thank you that you are this servant, this branch who has clothed us with clothes that we could never manufacture ourselves. And that you have given us this assurance that nothing can take that away from us. And assign to us a call that we are to walk in your ways. Father, will you soften our hearts during this season? Jesus, will you remind us over and over again of the depths of your love and care and compassion for us? We help us to love one another and to love you because you have first loved us. Jesus, we love you and we pray this in your name. Amen.